As you can see from the blackboard, um, your pastor in his old age is getting smart. We've had a couple of um, folks that have approached me for church membership, and I've been wanting to get a class together with them, but with travel and with uh, health matters um, unexpectedly coming about um, and just getting together and having the time to do it, um, it just hasn't worked out. So I've decided to hold a class this morning on the subject of church membership. Because not only new members need this, we all need something of a refresher course on biblical principles that govern the way in which we receive members into the church and just what our As you can see, the basis of it is the qualifications for membership, the benefits of membership, as well as the responsibilities. So I do want to go through this with you uh, this morning. And I want to begin with, unfortunately, a place you have to begin in the modern era, and that's to say something about the biblical basis for uh, church membership. It is a surprise to me that this is something that often is denied, something that I think is evident on the face of it, that the church should have a membership, tends to get obscured in the world in which we live, basically because people do not like, not so much they don't like membership in, in things, they just don't like the responsibilities of membership. Remember back in the day when the Columbia Record Company, they'd offer you four albums, free, free, if you join the Columbia Record Club. Who doesn't want to join the Columbia Record Club if you're getting four whole albums for free? Except to join means in the course of the next year you're going to buy four albums at their full price. There's a responsibility that goes along with it. We don't want to pay the dues for membership. We don't want to do the things that are needful to be members because there are things that are responsibilities and so we like to skate on those things. If it just was a matter of benefits, no one would complain. Everybody would join because they're getting something for it. But there is a biblical basis for the subject of membership even though people poo-poo the idea of membership lists. I mean really when you think about it, the very meaning of the church in the scriptures uh, requires there be an identifiable membership. Uh, the Hebrew, the, I'm sorry, the Greek word for a church is in ecclesia, and the New Testament uh, Greek it, it picks up on the Hebrew um, with kahal, which is an assembly. There's an assembly that gathers and meets a congregation, uh, the congregation in the wilderness, and that is comprised of members. It's comprised of individuals. And, you know, you go out to the Old Testament, people say, we don't like this idea of, of a list of members. Let them read the book of First Chronicles. I think the problem with a lot of this is that people just don't read their Bibles. Because you go to the book of Chronicles, and what do you have? The first nine chapters are simply lists of names of the people that belong to this tribe, that tribe, that tribe, that tribe. The people that came back from Babylon, their tribes, and the numbers are given. Um, their leaders are given. Uh, the people are accounted for. There is a total number that is envisioned. And you think of the um, way in which in, in chapter, I think it's 16 of First Chronicles, uh, David institutes the worship of, of, of song. And you have the Levites, and you have the sons of Asaph, and you know what? They're named. They're named. These are the people that do the work of leading the congregation in song. These are the names of the Levites that work in the sanctuary. If you're part of a group, 
it's a named entity. It's not something that's invisible. It's not something that you can't see. It's something you can see. It's comprised of people. And then when you think of that Greek word ekklesia, it's not only used in a religious sense to describe the church that Jesus builds when he says, I will build my ecclesia. It's also used in the Bible itself, in the book of Acts in particular, as the group that meets in civil authorities, the normal governing, um, I'm sorry, the normal uh, gathering of the city for the affairs of the city. You remember you had that riot at Ephesus and the town's clerk got up and said, this is an unlawful ecclesia. It's an unlawful church. It's an unlawful gathering. And he says, come back at the regular assembly, the regular gatherings. And when you had the regular gatherings, it wasn't comprised of foreigners. It was comprised of citizens of the city. And you know what? The citizens of the city were registered by birth as citizens of the city. Their names were written. And of course, the Bible takes up that picture in descriptive, as a descriptor of the church. Those whose names are written in the book of Lamb's Book of Life. It's not an invisible entity. It's an identifiable entity that's comprised of people. And you think of all the images that Scripture uses with reference to the church. What, what of those images would you not want to identifiable members? Think of the church as a body. And you just don't know. We can't really distinguish a heart from a liver. You can't distinguish uh, the hand from the eye. That's all confusion. There's discernible, identifiable members of the body. And there's a discernible, identifiable members of the church who all have a function for the building up of the well-being of the whole body. You think of the church as a family. You have in the family gathering at Thanksgiving, and you have an unidentifiable group that's going to gather there. Somebody just walks up off the street and, and says, I hear you're serving turkey here, so I want to be part of your family. Oh, oh, by the way, my name's the same as your name. No, you don't do that. They're not part of the family. You have a family that's an identifiable number. And if you're not part of the family, you have to have a special invitation. Only family members can barge in and say, I belong here. But God's people are a family. Think of an army. An army of unidentifiable people. I didn't make many formations when I was in the army. I just went to my job. But I know when you made formations, sometimes it would be a roll call. Sometimes you'd have to, you'd have to say, here, I'm here for the formation. They call it your name. And you have to say, you're here. You're part of the, part of the battalion. You're part of the company. You're part of the, the squad. You're part of that group. And you're identifiable. And so you don't have an army that just functions in terms of nameless, formless, uh, unidentifiable, invisible entities. I know you have in the modern era, I've run into people, you ask them where they go to church, they say, well, I attend the invisible church up in Boston. <laughs> Somebody told me one time, I attend the invisible church up in Boston. <laughs> Are there any visible members? I mean, the church is visible. It's one of the characteristics of the church is its visibility, its locality. I understand there's a universal church that can comprise of a multitude that no man can number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe. But there is a breakdown of that universal church in terms of local churches, in terms of the church of God in Corinth, in terms of the church of God at Rome, in terms of churches that are individual churches, house churches, where people gather to meet. 
The very fact that they were in people's houses, you, you knew that the people knew who it was that belonged. And the reality is that when the Bible speaks of the church and its work, it oftentimes has to distinguish those who are outside and those that are inside. Paul makes distinctions like that when this whole matter of the confusion of his first letter to the Corinthians is reflected on in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 5. Yeah, Paul expressing the fact that this immoral man who had been guilty of a sin that not even the tolerated among the pagans that he should be removed from you he should be removed from among you wait a minute how can he be removed from among them because he, he's not a member <laughs> there are no members no there are members he's part of them he is joined to them and you and we'll see baptism is the main issue of uniting with the people of God uniting with the church of God now this baptized believer who's at Corinth an identifiable member is to be removed from them and then Paul says in verse 9 I wrote to you this is 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9 in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother and is sexually immoral, is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, and an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Not to hold table fellowship with them. And that probably doesn't include the Lord's Supper. Not to have the Lord's Supper with them. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? See, there are outsiders. There are those inside the church, those that are part of the church, and those that are outsiders. There is a mark of demarcation between those outside and those inside. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? If you don't have identifiable members, how do you know who to judge? How do you make a distinction between outsider and insider if there's no membership, if there's no actual point in which you receive somebody into visible identification with the church of Christ. God judges those outside. You to judge those that are inside. And you need to know them. You need to know them. They are identifiable because the church is identifiable. So I think that... Oh, there's another thing to, to realize. It's not as strong in my understanding as the meaning of ecclesia and kahal but, and the images that are used. But, but Paul does make reference to certain people who he associates with certain congregations. Um, Phoebe, who's a deacon of Sancria. She's, she's, she's there in that church in Sancria. Uh, he speaks of Onesimus in the Colossian letter. He says, who is one of you? He's part of you. He's joined to you. Uh, he's identifiable with the church at Colossae. He is one of you. Um, and so those statements are made. That people are identifiable, not just with the church universal. I'm a member of the church universal. Oh, really? <laughs> Fine. <laughs> how'd, you be, how'd you join that? <laughs> how'd you join the... Oh, I was born again. Okay, fine. But um, there are people in the New Testament who are identified not just with the church universal through the power of a new birth, but with individual local congregations. They're one of you. They're part of the church in this place or that place or the next place. So the very way in which the scripture views um, the church would indicate that there is to be a recognition of those who are part of this assembly that Jesus is building, this ecclesia that Jesus is 
building. Any questions about the subject of um, the basis for membership? You know, Groucho Marx said he would never join a, 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 any organization that would accept him as a member. <laughs> that was meant to be funny, and, and, it, and it is. But, uh, you know, we have, again, we have negative attitudes about membership in the modern world, about joining lots of things. But in Scripture, uh, I think it's an assumption that you are, bought, you are part of something, a visible, identifiable part of the assembly of Christ. Yes, Tim. Um, you said that maybe sometimes people don't want to join a church because of their the responsibility that incurs. With it. Off the top of your head, are there other reasons that you think are parts, or other reasons why people move from church to church or don't visibly join? Well, I, I, one of the things I think I'm going to talk about when I get to the responsibilities is that sometimes some churches can lay responsibilities upon people that are a bit uh, arduous and, and difficult. And, you know, we've had people that have left this church saying, well, we don't like the fact that you have this policy because this policy we're not able to fulfill. And, uh, of course, they've just left. Of course, they're leaving me behind. I'm open to negotiate because I don't want to see them leave. I, I think that, you know, it, if there's some way we could work out something that's agreeable to both sides. But sometimes people just think, well, that's the church's position. It's set in stone. I, I'm not doing it, so bye-bye. Um, so, you know, that, that happens. So we, I think we have to be careful in terms of uh, not laying responsibilities upon people that are uh, too rigid, too uncompromising, too, um, uh, uh, too, too set in stone. Uh, again, there are certain things that are clearly responsibilities that, that Paul's talking about with reference to biblical morality. If you exceed the boundaries of biblical morality in terms of sexual sins and greed and uh, the other things he mentions, being a drunkard or a reviler or a swindler, uh, these are not the things that are being named amongst the people of God. And so that's something that's non-negotiable, but there are lots of things that we have as churches that uh, we can um, look to, you know, rather than see people leave, see what we can work out. We can be understanding with people, because people have a multiplicity of reasons that they can't do this or can't do that or don't want to do this or don't want to do that. But maybe that's what they're, where they are today, but maybe not tomorrow. So, you know, we should be open to you know, see what we can do to work out. But that's later on that I want to get to that. Yeah, Sue. I'm just thinking that people that I know have attended here and didn't want to join or never brought up the subject of joining or being a member, a lot of times it had to do with their commitment. Maybe things in their life that they knew they didn't want oversight and they also wanted a back door to leave if things didn't work out. I'm thinking of several people. Okay. Okay. Well, commitment, just like people today who don't get married. Yeah. Yeah, they want to live together. Yeah. They want to, they want to live together so that there's a back door and no one will say anything if they leave. And Mike. Um, I know a lot of church sort of denominations that they people get used to those things because they don't want to put commitments on their people. So they have no membership or something. And their background now is, is that why should I, my last church didn't have membership or something like that. Why should I 
Go to a church that enforces it. Yeah. Not used to it. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think that's a, a situation where the leadership is opting out of biblical responsibilities, defined responsibilities that pastors have to the people that regularly attend upon their ministry. And so there should be some kind of an agreement or an arrangement or an understanding that we have a relationship. And I think that's the that's part of it is the real failure to see uh, the church as um, a family in which there are family relationships and responsibilities we have to one another. And it's not just a, it's not just an entity that we get benefits from that we like and we can then opt out. It's not like going to the theater, going to church. And uh, if, you, if you like the show, maybe you'll come back to the next show. But if you don't like the show, you'll, uh, you know, look for some other thing, some other form of entertainment. But I think so often that is what it becomes. What what benefits me? What pleases me? And there's very little in the way of commitment to um, um, some of the things we're going to talk about in the way of responsibilities to one another. So that's the first thing. second thing we want to talk about is we want to talk about qualifications for membership. Um, there are qualifications that people need to um, come to membership with. And, of course, the first thing is faith that the church is the household of faith. It's the fellowship of the saints. It's the group of believers that assemble together. And the commonality is they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that faith is something that is something you wouldn't laugh at. You wouldn't say, you're a believer, you're a Christian? Man, oh man, never knew that. Never, never, would, have, never, never would have guessed it in a million years that you're a Christian. Because in fact, everything in some people's lives would testify against their being a Christian. You know, somebody that's uh, guzzling down a you know, jug of moonshine <laughs> with his arm around uh, some woman he picked up off the street, a t- total stranger that he's, you know, you would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's nice that you want to join a church, but I don't really think perhaps uh, you qualify. Uh, I don't see that there's a reality of Christian faith and commitment uh, to Jesus in the way that you conduct yourself and live your life. And so there would be some um, way to assess the reality of someone's faith. So there needs to be a believable belief, a faith that is uh, in some ways manifesting some form of faithfulness. And then the second thing is that upon faith, there is believer's baptism. There is the confession of Jesus in uh, baptism. And of course you see in the book of Acts when people are baptized upon um, repentance and upon faith. And faith and repentance are not different things. They're just aspects of the same thing. The same turning away from sin and turning to God in Christ. Or turning away from idols to the turning to God in Christ. And you see when people uh, repent and uh, they're baptized. Um, look at um, Verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, it says, Now when they heard this, that is, the people hearing Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you, your children, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls 
to himself. That's the mark of the child of God. God's called you by the gospel, called you to faith in his son. And you've manifested faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And then it says in verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. They received the word, they believed in Christ, they came to faith, they were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So it's amazing, in one day 3,000 baptisms. Man, that's a lot of work, baptizing 3,000 people. But 3,000 souls apparently believed, 3,000 souls were baptized, and then 3,000 souls were added to them. And then it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. I'm sorry, yes, fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They became part of the group that started to meet together. They started to meet together at the temple. They started to meet in house to house, from house to house. Um, you see verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. They began to be part of the community of believers. They began to associate with one another. And, and, they, and, and they focused in upon the apostolic teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, the things that belong to church life. And so they believed, they were baptized. And then there's another thing, which is, I can't prove this from the Bible. I could just say, I can prove it from just common experience is that there needs to be in the light of the situation in the church today what I'm just going to call congeniality congeniality what I mean by that congeniality according to Webster's is friendly interest and support friendly interest and support no overarching problems that exist between the person going to be received into the church and the church itself. I'll give you an example. Had a guy come here one time, just for the evening service. I mean, he came morning. came morning and then he came in the evening. came up to me after the evening service and he says, when did you, when do you guys have the Lord's Supper? I said, well, the first Sunday of the month. He says, you don't have it every week? I said, no, we don't have it every week. And I got a, a sermon from this guy and he was implacable. You have to have the Lord's Supper every single time the church gathers. Or there's not a legitimate meeting. This is not to be pleasing God. It's not to be pleasing Christ. It's not to be operating in accordance with his conception of what God's word demands. Now I know there are people that believe that weekly communion is something they think is biblical. I'm unpersuaded. They may be right. But I don't think it's that clear that I could say definitely this is absolutely how things must be done if it was uh, if i joined a church that had that practice i could get along with it i can be congenial i could have friendly interest and support in that group even though i don't believe it's necessary to have it every single week but that man so insistent it must be this way and no other he can't be congenial joining joining this assembly he would be outraged every single week. He'd be offended. He'd be upset. He'd be tearing his hair out. He'd be saying, like, these people just don't get it. They don't get God's will. They're not doing God's will. They could, that person could not engage in membership in this church with any measure of congeniality. 
He has no sympathy, no support, no real interest in what we're doing here because we're outside the pale of what he thinks is acceptable practices. The same thing might be if uh, the church was uh, exercising the so-called charismatic gifts of the Spirit. Or people were accustomed to doing the charismatic gifts of the Spirit and they came here and they said, why aren't you speaking in tongues? Why aren't you prophesying? Why aren't you doing the things we think are biblical and important and necessary? And I would say, friend, (laughs) we just don't see that that is part of what is the ongoing working of the Holy Spirit among the people of God. Um, We don't think that first century sign gifts are, are evident, not just here, but where you've gone before. We don't think that's biblical. First century sign gifts. These were things that were to bear witness to the gospel. And they were miraculous. They were extraordinary. They weren't just, well, somebody had a little, you know, crick in his back and he felt better because somebody laid hands on him and poured oil over him. I mean, that uh, often happens, and uh, that's not bad. Somebody's back feels better, I'm all for it, especially having a trick back myself. But it's not something that is first century miracles. It's not the raising of the dead. It's not the walking on water. It's not the sort of thing you see that are called signs, wonders, and mighty works. So we would depart from that. And, um, but we won't help, we, we don't hate those people, but we wonder if people who hold those positions would be congenial here, that they find themselves in having friendly interest and support of this work. They may be, and if so, fine, we would welcome them, but likely not. And so we might think they should go to a church where they would have more congeniality, more friendly interest and support of that ministry. And we can be friends, and we can love one another, respect one another, but differ from one another along those lines. It's not as if there's not enough churches out there with that opinion. They're there, and and they're plentiful. And and it's not that we wouldn't welcome them if they could operate within the constraints of how we see things and not be complaining. If that sense, they can be congenial, holding to a difference of opinion. But those are the three things I think are essential to the... um, Two of them non-negotiable. You you have to believe, you have to be baptized, and you have to have congeniality. I will say with regard to baptism, um, this whole questions of whose baptism do you receive? If somebody comes in, wants to join our church, and they're coming from a paedo-baptist background, being baptized as infants, what do you do with them? Well, we would simply instruct them. We don't think that's biblical baptism. It's inadequate baptism. Um, we, we have we have had uh, a certain um, flexibility to have them as an associate member, but not a full member or a voting member, uh, yet giving them the benefit of uh, understanding them to be believers, having a different point of view on issues like baptism. Um, but um, we would hold fast to our position with respect to what we would think is full membership. And then there's also those people that feel, well, I've been baptized as a as a as a 11-year-old when I went to camp and heard the gospel, but then I lived in sin for a number of years, and now I've come back. Do I need to get baptized again? Well, again, we'll, all we can do is give instruction as to what we think conversion is, what we think baptism is, and leave it up to the person. And if you're not comfortable thinking that baptism was a Christian baptism, then we you know and and a re, not a rebaptism, but a first baptism is is in order. Um, we would uh, consent to that.
Any questions with respect to those three qualifications? Let's move on to benefits. First of all, the benefit of church membership is, has been mentioned, pastoral care. You come under the oversight of a church in which there is a defined relationship to authority uh, of the pastors who preach the word of God, who have also a responsibility not just to publicly preach the word of God to you, but to enter into the, with, with a, a pastoral heart, with a loving concern uh, to your spiritual struggles and interests, concerns, problems, and be available to serve you, to minister to your spiritual needs, to put down anything they're doing, and to go over to your home if you need counseling or you need prayer or you need support, uh, to be there when you say, uh, Pastor, um, I've taken a partner and I'm looking to become married. And uh, so, again, marriage is not an ordinance that the church sees as a sacrament. But yet, uh, as someone who is a pastor of a congregation, it's certainly nice to have prayers, to have Christian perspectives in a wedding, to perform those things, uh, to perform funerals and things like that. Uh, there is an obligation that comes um, to the pastor. Now, we offer things to other people, but it's not obligatory. It's not obligatory. Somebody comes off the street and says, uh, oh, I've you know, been attending this church for a week and a half and I, I'm getting married. Would you perform this ceremony? Well, maybe, maybe not. But uh, I've had no obligation. I might do it as a friend. I might do it as uh, a minister of the gospel. But I wouldn't do it necessarily having an obligation of pastoral care to the person. There would be an obligation to find responsibility that... I would have to give you the benefit of everything I can do to support you, uphold you, to bless you, to be a means for your edification. And then, not just the relationship you have to the pastor, but also you enter into a supportive community. There's supportive oversight of the gospel ministers, but there's also the supportive community of the church, family life that we have as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we enter into this partnership with one another where there is um, the benefit of knowing that somebody's looking out for me. Somebody has my back. Somebody's praying for me. Somebody cares that we're sick, we have COVID, or somebody cares that we um, are experiencing struggles at our jobs or in our neighborhoods or with our children. And people are, are looking to encourage. Also, they're concerned to admonish. The scripture says, if any of you are overtaken in the fault, you who are spiritual are to go and look to restore that person with a spirit of gentleness. And so we have a responsibility that, uh, to one another, which is a benefit to the member of the church with the realization people really care for me. People are concerned about my good, my well-being, my growth in, fit, in grace, my, my, my walk before the Lord, that they would be um, helping me. Uh, I, could, I can confide in them, uh, uh, my struggles, and uh, elicit their prayers and have a sense they're not going to be looking down their noses at me as those who are holier than thou, uh, but people that have genuine Christian views of uh, church life and responsibility to all the duties, uh, you might say, of the one another passages in the New Testament, principally to love one another, then to encourage one another, 
and to build up one another in the faith. All those one another passages that scripture sets out uh, for us. Then there's the benefit of having in the church a voice and a vote. Um, to have a voice in the meetings of the church and decisions that are made by the church. Uh, things that are brought to the church for the purposes of voting. Uh, to have also an ability to uh, affirm the decision. To say, well, you know, I think you might be onto something, but maybe not yet. So I don't think I could vote in favor of something. You, you can have that in- influence in the life of the congregation. Now, people who come who are not members, can we invite them to come to our meetings. And if they have some inch, some concern or maybe some advice, yeah, we'll listen to them. But there's no official weight to what they're saying in terms of membership in the church. We could hear it and think it's wise, think it's foolish or whatever, but it's just an opinion of someone outside. But when you're a member of a family, it's a different story. Uh, you have a voice at the table, and you have um, uh, everyone having a responsibility to hear your voice and um, and uh, to understand what your opinion is and to respect that opinion. And again, there's no right or wrong way to vote. I know there's churches that practice that sort of thing. The elders come with a suggestion and say, we've decided this, and we ask the church to vote on it, which simply means to affirm what we've what we've said. But the whole purpose of a vote is you've made the case so persuasively that people will then say, with our vote, we will support you wholeheartedly. And if you haven't made the case, they would say, no, I don't think you've made the case. So they vote no. So um, there's actually an ability to um, have an informed uh, input in all of the decisions that the congregation makes. And then, there, of course, there are the opportunities to serve. The opportunities to use our gifts and our graces in the service of one another. And again, we don't give the right to teach the, in the Sunday school to everyone that's off the street. You know, we first look to exercise uh, some discretion as to our members having an ability to communicate. And if we have people that are able to do that and willing to do that, I mean, that's far better, in my estimation, than going to get somebody outside of the congregation to come and minister, let's say, in my absence. Although it's fine to have somebody from the outside from time to time. But yet it's good to have people in our own assembly that we encourage uh, to teach, to teach the children in the Sunday school, um, to um, lead in the prayer meeting, to um, uh, serve in um, the ministries Mike's going to be doing today at the at the uh, at, at 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 the nursing home. So um, we looked for opportunities for people to utilize their gifts and their graces in the service of the Lord um, as members of, of the congregation. So uh, those are the benefits I thought of: um, the benefit of pastoral care, congregational um, support, a voice and a vote, and opportunities for service. Anything else that? Uh, I've, not, I've neglected or questions you have about things I've covered. I'm not sure um, about church discipline. Um, church discipline really co- it, it comes under, it's going to come under response. Well, there's a sense in which church discipline is part of pastoral care. It is for your benefit that if so, yeah. So I would put it under pastoral care. 
And it's something that the church exercises, but they exercise usually under the leadership of their pastors that have said, you know, we've counseled, we've sought repentance, it's not been forthcoming, and therefore this is what we need to be doing. So it's somewhat under pastoral care, a bit under congregational life. Um, Yeah, so you can make it its own point or put it under either of those things. Uh, it's also a responsibility that you have to submit to it when it's given. So it can be put in a number of different places. Anything else? Uh, I was thinking church attendance. Church attendance. That's the last thing. <laughs> Dealing under responsibilities. That would be more the part of responsibilities. Although it's a benefit to attend the church, I would think. You should see it as a benefit. <laughs> But I'm going to say something at the end. So, move on to responsibilities. Unless there's something else? No, I mean, I was just remembering when Jan spoke about church discipline. Um, when I was when I was about to become a member here, I went to the elders of my previous church and I told them that um, I was joining this church and that it would that while I would still take your advice as a friend or whatever, um, other than asking me not to show up ever again, I would not, uh, I would, I'm submitting myself to the discipline of mm-hmm. this church. And I, and I, because I think that's, that is an important thing, to put yourself under the leadership of the, the church that you're going to. Right. Yeah. But you know, the whole subject of discipline can be divided under what's called formative discipline and corrective discipline. And the formative discipline is really what we've been talking about with respect to pastoral care and congregational life, and also corrective discipline as well. So both parts of it really are part, is, is what we are signing up for that when we become members of the church. This will become part of a community, and a community that's concerned uh, with our growth, with our spiritual well-being and our spiritual good. And so we look to have formative discipline to, to build one another up in the faith, to encourage uh, growth and spiritual maturity, um, but also corrective discipline where that's warranted. Yes? Uh, I remember Vivian. Yes, yeah, Steve became a member. Oversight of the church and the, you know, the benefits. Again, we want to extend uh, whatever we can to people, whether they're actually in formal membership or not. You get one soldier joined the church, one didn't, but we tried to bless each of them. But there was a formal responsibility that we had with one that we did not have with the, with, with the other. Although, again, we want to do good to all people, not just those who are members of the church. Responsibilities. Let's move on to responsibilities. I think I have, what, a, five of them. Um, I'll give it to you first. Act graciously, serve willingly, receive submissively, give gladly, attend faithfully. Those are responsibilities. First of all, we have a responsibility to act graciously. Uh, to, Did you say act courageously? To act graciously. Gracious. Yeah, to walk in love. To walk in a gracious manner uh, with one another. Um, to love each other fervently from the heart. The graces of the Christian life coming to full expression 
in our lives. Uh, we're to be at peace with one another. Uh, we're to be uh, furthering one another's joy in the Christian faith. And so we exhibit joy. We encourage joy. We encourage peace. We encourage love. Uh, this is how we act in the presence of one another. And then, of course, we help one another when times are going hard. Uh, to weep with those that weep and to rejoice with those that, 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 um, that rejoice. We all have that responsibility uh, to be sympathetic to one another. It's all part of a lifestyle that's rooted in uh, the grace of the gospel that freely we have received and freely we are to give uh, to one another. And then that moves on into the area of our service, that we serve one another willingly, that we give of our time, we give of our treasures, we give of our talents uh, for the building up of the saints, for for, uh, for their well-being. And and so there is a a priority that that has. If need arises, we don't say that's somebody else's problem. No, it's part of our problem. At least if we cannot give of, of ourselves uh, to assist in that need, to pray uh, for that person, to show compassion. Uh, again, we are members one of another. And as members of one another, we're to serve one another sacrificially. And then we're to receive submissively. And I was thinking here of such things as ministries as we've already spoken of, of the person that's overtaken in a fault. And the brother goes to him in a spirit of gentleness and says, Brother, um, I think I need to encourage you in, in, in the way that um, I, I see some, some fault. I see some things that need uh, to be addressed and something needs to be corrected. That uh, church members not to respond and say, that's none of your business. What are you doing moving into my own space? Get out of here. You don't belong here. No. We are to receive those ministries. It's not to be that we say, uh, get, out of my, get, get, get out of my life. You have no business um, meddling with the... the you know, again, it's, you know, if it's actually meddling in things that are none of your business, sure, um, that's a point where you're then being corrected for having done something wrong. But somebody that's going to you, uh, hear them out. Receive them. Be submissive. We're told to submit to one another in the fear of Christ. And that means a spirit of humility. I almost called this to walk humbly. What does the Lord require of you, Micah, Micah says in Micah uh, 6, but to uh, do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We're to walk humbly before one another and, and to receive submissively the things that people will call to our attention out of concern and love. Again, there are some people in the church that think they're appointed by the Lord to go around and correct everybody's faults, and they'll do it quite gladly, and they'll do it with a certain measure of uh, pride and and harshness. I think I've told you about the fellow that that I knew that every single time uh, I ran into him, public meetings or privately in my own kitchen, he had something that he would lower as a boom on me. And accuse me of this, and accuse me of that, and say this, and say that, and he did that publicly. And uh, just at one point, he was uh, doing it again. And finally, I said, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Why is it every time I come across you, whether it's in public meetings or in my own home, all you do is look to make me feel guilty?" And his response to me was, "Faithful are the wounds of a friend." 
And so, wait a minute. You think you're my friend? Going around wounding me? You're not even trying to be a friend. First, that's assumed a relationship, a friendship. Then you can begin the wounding in friendship, in, in love. But that's not an assumed relationship. Even because you're a church leader, it's not an assumed relationship. You have to build up that sense of friendship and interest in one another. You just don't go around taking the sword and looking to lop off ears and wounding others. And, um, but the nice thing was that after I went into my little litany of all the things he had done in the past, I paused and I said, um, oh, I apologize, I just went off on you the way that I did. And his response to me is, was that, that's okay, Paul, I'm listening. So sometimes that's what people need. They need somebody to just say, stop this, this is nonsense. You shouldn't be doing this. These things you've done repeatedly are, are simply wrong. And uh, the, I don't think the man wanted to act poorly. I just think he just didn't, wasn't able to discern uh, what was uh, a correct uh, way to, um, to, to deal with people. Because he assumed an office in the church, he was leader in the church, and he felt that that was just, you know, just part of his responsibilities to go around correcting everything that was wrong. First, make sure something's wrong. First, make sure something's wrong. Usually when I talk to people about something, I look to soften it a bit. I look to say, you know, I may be out of line. I may be wrong. I may be crazy. I may be, you know, I look to soften it. But uh, could it be that when, when I saw this, this is what really was there? You know, correct me if I'm wrong. But this is what I thought was there. Am I right? And first find out there's something wrong. And um, do it again in the spirit of, of gentleness. There's a mention of, uh, of giving gladly, um, and particularly here, the responsibilities of membership is to support the work of the church. The bills don't get paid on their own. Manna does not come down from heaven in the church in, in, in these days. We, we need the, the willing giving of the people of God. And the willing giving of the people of God, you know, you have that passage, I believe it's in Exodus, where the people gave willingly. Um, and it says, or maybe when they gave for the temple. No, I'm sorry. I'm not sure if it was Moses or David, but either one. The people were giving, and it says, um, they gave what was not their own. They gave of what God had given them. That's the intent of it. I don't have it exactly right. But there was the recognition that there's nothing we have but what we've received. And because we've received it, we have a stewardship over what God's given us. That's to be expressed in grateful giving to the work of God's kingdom. You can't get the pastor supported if giving is not being done. You can't uh, help missionaries if giving is not being done. There used to be a time in which people like Hudson Taylor would say things like, God's work done in God's way never lacks God's supply. But that was when people were responsible to give and felt that there was a a mandate uh, to give to the work of the kingdom of God. I fear that uh, that's not getting done today. It's it's a sad thing that we can't get God's work done God's way. Simply there's no supply. The cupboards are bare. And it's not because people aren't attending church. They're attending church. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the money that's being given is being taken by people for their own 
financing of extravagant lifestyles rather than the work of the kingdom. Anyway, so giving gladly is part of our responsibility. And then attending faithfully. And again, we used to have, when I came to the church, uh, a constitution that said these are the stated services of the church and every member will strive to faithfully attend the services of the church unless providentially hindered. I think that was the language that we used. And um, I think it was that standard that uh, caused some people who once attended to say, I don't think I can do that any longer. And, and they ended up leaving. They ended up leaving. And I would far rather have people come in the morning and show their commitment in other ways. I mean, if they're not showing the commitment in any way, they're never available at a work day, they're never available to help in any fashion, they just attend uh, one service and there's no involvement in social things. There's, oh, Allison Hunter is with us. So, um, let me admit her. I just saw that. Um, but there are other ways that people demonstrate that in fact they are strongly committed uh, to the work of the church. It's not registered in the way that I was told real commitment to the church ought to be registered. In an ideal world, I'd love to see everybody, Sunday school, morning worship, evening worship, and Wednesday prayer meeting. Just the real world I live in just doesn't seem to be that that's going to be, um, if, I, if we make it a mandatory thing, and so you can't be a member if you don't do all that, well, we'll have a lot of people that have done wonderful things for the work of this church who won't be with us any longer. That's just simply a reality. So I got burnt a few times along those lines, so I'm more than willing to be understanding, um, more than willing to um, just understand the world in which we live. Some people will just be crushed under the weight of such responsibilities. Of course, they do other things quite quite willingly. I understand the inconsistencies. I don't like the inconsistencies. But we live in a world of inconsistencies. And I'm just, I'm just prepared to, to endure it. I'm just prepared to endure it. Yeah, go ahead. And again, um, it's not always a hard issue. It's more often than not just an issue of the way people have grown up, the things they've been trained. They may have hearts that glisten with purity 
of motive and intention and desire towards Christ, but it gets manifested in other ways. It doesn't get manifested in the way that so often we'd like it to be manifested, which is a full commitment to all of the services of the church. But who's to say that's the only gauge by which you measure the integrity of someone's heart? You know, I, I, I just wonder sometimes if it's not more the sense that a pastor has, look, I've worked hard in my study all week, and I've worked not only for the morning worship service, I've worked for the evening worship service, I've worked for the Sunday school, and I think people should hear me. And maybe something that's more, not so much the hearts of everyone else, maybe his own heart just needing to get stroked, or his own ego needing to get stroked. Um, Again, that's not to say that's always the case, but again, there's all kinds of different variables. And we have to function with, um, you know, as a family in the midst of all the different variables that exist within any family. And, um, you know, you don't kick somebody out of the family because, uh, you know, they, they missed uh, Thanksgiving. They, they may be there at Christmas. <laughs> or they, they may come at your door on New Year's. Uh, they're still family. They're still family. And they need to be received and embraced as such. The other thing I just was thinking in the benefits too is that as a, as a body of church, we're, we're a body of Christ. And the benefit, I think, of being a body together is makes us reflect upon what we are in Christ. You know, that we, that He is our, He is our mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. head, He's our. Yeah. You know, yeah. How he treats us. Right. Yeah. And again, it says they continue together in the apostolic teaching, but doesn't say necessarily this this time, this time, this time, and this time. And that it doesn't the doctrine of stated meetings is not a biblically defined teaching. Although, you know you want people to be committed. You want people to come regularly. You want them to attend faithfully. And there are people that attend the ministry of this church quite faithfully, but unfortunately they don't do it as much as we'd like them to do it in terms of a more extensive commitment, but they're there every single Sunday morning when we gather. So anyway, that's just my opinion on this uh, and just how for the last number of years we've operated. Uh, Just being, some would say you're being lax. I'm just saying we're being realistic. We're being realistic. Well, If you have questions, let me know. Our time is gone. I hope some of this has been helpful. Again, some of this is biblically defined. Some of this has been, you know, just our sense of things. But um, again, we operate as a a church under the governance of God's word. And we do our best. We do our best to certainly embrace the non-negotiables that scripture gives us and within everything else that is not as clearly defined to try to be gracious and loving, understanding and forbearing and forgiving. So as long as we follow out uh, that path, I think we'll, we'll be doing as well as we can do as God's people. So hope some of this is good and helpful and strengthening to you. So let's go before God's presence in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time that we could spend in your presence and meet to talk about uh, these matters of church life and speak about the importance of being joined to an assembly. We're thankful for those who are part of this assembly. Whatever their degree of attendance, their commitment has been demonstrated time and again. And for that, we are glad. 
We pray that you would be pleased to bless every member of our assembly, help them to be regarded and respected and loved and embraced and encouraged, and that, Lord, we would do all we can to bless one another. We ask that you'd be pleased to be with those who have approached us with respect and membership in our assembly. Lord, as we would receive them into the fellowship of our church, make them to be a blessing to us and give us to be, in turn, a blessing to them in every way that we possibly can. So hear our prayers, look upon us with your favor, as we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.